Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. We're in the middle of what's going to be several sessions about the Kaddish. In our first session last time, we talked about the history of some of the language of the Kaddish, um, the point of the Kaddish, which is for the, uh, I'm loosely going to call it in air quotes, the point of the Kaddish, which is to get the, um, for the leader to instruct the Kahal, the congregation, to praise God's name. So it's, in this way, it's kind of analogous to Baruch Hu, although it's much longer, obviously, than the Baruch Hu. And the way the Kahal praises God's name is, Yeheshmei Rabbah Mevarach Le'olamol Me'amaya, may God's great name be blessed forever and ever and ever. Okay. And um, we said that there are, I think I enumerated five Kaddishes, Full Kaddish, Chatzy Kaddish, Mourner's Kaddish, Kaddish to Rabbanan, and the Graveside Kaddish, which is also said at siyums or endings of tractates of the Talmud. So we have five versions of the Kaddish, although in all of them, the core, you might call it the Chatzy Kaddish. I was going to take, I take it back. I was going to say, uh, where's the Kaddish to Rabbanan, um, expand after? Page 13. Uh, yeah, right. So basically, in all five of those, well, that's not true, because the graveside Kaddish is an exception. So in four out of the five, the core part of the Kaddish, you know, like Chatzit Kaddish remains the same, okay? And the changes are in what comes after the Kaddish. And Kaddish apparently started out as the prayer that was said in Aramaic after the teaching in Aramaic at the end of the daily service every morning. So it came to be seen as a punctuator after the service. We get up and we praise God. And then that punctuation expanded into other spaces. Whenever we finish a section of the service, then we do this punctuation. We pause to praise God with the words of the Kaddish. That's why we have so many Kaddishes in the service. So what I'm going to do now today I'll pause and just ask if there are any questions about that, but then I'll say, um, to not, to, to not keep the teaser lingering for, for too many weeks, I'll talk a little bit about how there got to be a mourner's cottage at all, right? I don't think we're going to talk much yet about what the mourner's cottage might mean to mourners, but we'll just talk a little bit about historically about how that happens. Okay. Um, then, We'll delve into the meaning of the Kaddish. We'll look at the words and we probably won't finish that this week entirely. And then next week, we'll, God willing, we'll try to go on and finish talking about the meaning of the Kaddish and we'll try to get to and what might it mean for mourners. So for mourners Kaddish, we're going to talk about that a little bit this week and more next week. This week, just historical. Okay. First, I want to pause and say, are there any questions lingering from last week or from the first part of what I said? Uh, uh, Larry, walking hand. Yes. Yeah, I don't know whether this is something you want to ask, uh, answer now, but in terms of the choreography or the orchestration, the, I know that the Kaddish is to get the Kahal to be able to say, hey, Shmei. But some places I've heard where the person doing the Kaddish waits till the congregation says it and he repeats it after Great. they say it. 
Great is question. Is there anything to that? Great question. If I don't get back to it, which I'm likely to forget, then please ask me. But I, I might, we might not get to that today. It might be next week. Okay. Important question. But I don't think we should look at that until we actually look at all the wordings because that understanding the Kaddish is going to help us understand why the choreography is the way it is. We, we can't really understand the choreography without first looking at the words. Okay. Good. Other questions that people want to get to either on what we did before that you want to get to. Okay. So let's go on. So how did there get to be a more, Oh, Michael, was that a hand? Did you wave a hand? No, you just no. moved. You moved a muscle. Okay. All right. So how did there get to be a mourner's Kaddish ever in like, given that this is a punctuation? Okay. Why is there a moment of this punctuation or actually two, one in the beginning of the davening, one in the end of the davening when Kaddish is said by mourners? So here's the history of that. And also, uh, people asked about my handout. Um, so Bert, our good friend Bert Kleiman uh, volunteers to post all of the stuff on the Betham um, podcast website. You can just go to podcasts and find all of ours. So I am going to send my handout to Bert, and he will post it there uh, later today. So if you want a copy of that, um, it'll be there later. Uh, I'm, I can't. I don't have the time to drop it into the chat right now. A little too complicated for me to do. So how did there get to be a Kaddish at all said by mourners? So this goes back to about the 12th century-ish, not before, again, which means we have this idea that Mourner's Kaddish is like Mycenae, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's not. And it's not even mentioned in the Talmud ever. Nothing about it. It goes back to the 12th century where there are halachic sources that say, and they give an orphan, an opportunity to say a Kaddish. That's what it says. Um, so, and this is based on the story of Rabbi Akiva. That's what it says in the halachic sources, Rabbi Isaac of Vienna in the Orza Ru. I think it's in the, the 12th century. Okay. So what is the story of Rabbi Akiva? So there's a Midrash, um, which is medieval. It's not Talmudic or in the classic Midrashic era, which appears in various iterations which goes something like that. And by the way, if you want to read a lot about this, um, I had said that many people have written their Kaddish memoirs, you know, written a book about my year of saying Kaddish. Probably the densest of them, the densest read is Leon Weaseltier's book called Kaddish. Um, and he talks about this at great length. All right. And he track, and he tracks the various versions of this midrash. Cause as you know, with midrash, when they're repeated by different midrash collections, there are always little variations in the story. So the story goes something like this. Rabbi Akiva in a dream sees a man who is bent under uh, the weight of an impossible weight of wood, a bundle of sticks kindling on his back and he's all blackened. And he's scurrying, and Rabbi Akiva says, wait, 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 who are you? What are you doing? And the man says, ah, I'm dead. And in my life, I was, in most versions of the story, he says, I was a tax collector. Tax collector was sort of one of the most hated people in ancient times. They were what's actually called tax (laughs) farmers, which means it was a private individual who was given the, I think today we would call it legally the concession by the government to you can collect taxes in this area and on our behalf. 
and then you can keep some percentage of the taxes. And so this was the guy who went around and hocked people for taxes, and no one liked the tax collector. It, you didn't fill out forms and send checks to the IRS, right? Someone actually collected either money or a percentage of your crops or something. So no one liked the tax collector, and everyone tried to hide their wealth. So even though the tax collector might have been Jewish and might have been part of your community, he was generally a reviled figure. In life, I was a tax collector, and I'm in purgatory now. We'll talk in a moment about purgatory and medieval beliefs about purgatory. And every day they make me in purgatory uh, carry this this bundle of wood, and then there are various versions, in some versions, and then they light a fire, and then they burn my body on it, and then in the morning I have to do the same thing all over again the next day. Um, or the next day I have to carry the wood back. So there are various versions of this suffering that this guy is forced to undergo in purgatory. And then Rabbi Yaqib says to him, oh, no, that sounds terrible. What would release you from this? And the man says, you know, I left behind one son as an orphan, but he is ignorant. I did not teach him even Aleph Bet. And, you know, if this boy would get up in the congregation once and get them to praise God's name, that would be a mitzvah that would release me from my suffering. Oh, I forgot to tell you, the man lives in a very far away town from where Rabbi Akiva is. So Rabbi Akiva wakes up in the morning, and unlike many of us who might say, ah, what a lot of narishkeit that dream was, I wonder what I ate before bedtime, Rabbi Akiva takes it seriously, he goes and journeys into that town, which, by the way, I think that town in some versions is in Asia Minor. I think it's in Turkey, right? So it's an opportunity to get us to think about the people of Turkey and northern Syria who are suffering right now after the earthquake. So Rabbi Kiva goes to that town, and he says to the townspeople, hey, did you ever know so-and-so? And they say, oh, yeah, that worthless guy, he was a tax collector. We hated him. He's dead now, thank goodness. And they say, well, does he, do you have a, a child? Oh yeah, he's got some son who lives at the edge of town, but he's, he's an ignoramus and a bum and, you know, we have nothing to do with him. So Rabbi Akiva goes, finds him, teaches him the alphabet and some basic prayers. By the way, of course, there's an intentionality in this story because of the fact that it's Rabbi Akiva, not someone else. Because if you will remember Rabbi Akiva's origin story, what was he before he was a Torah scholar? Come on. Yeah, go ahead, Vered, unmute. Unmute, Vered. You are muted. I read her lips. He was a shepherd. And what kind of shepherd? Was he an educated shepherd who knew how to read no, Torah? No, Vered? no, not educated. He was completely. an ignorant shepherd who knew nothing. Shepherd. An ignorant shepherd who knew right. nothing and then went to study for 12 years while his wife, you know, sold her hair oh, to support his yeshiva studies, and then he went to study another 12 years, right? Toda, Vered, you can mute again, right? So Rabbi Akiva, who was an ignorant man who went and studied Aleph Bet from nothing as a grown-up, has some, that I think that's why it's him in the story. So he teaches the, the tax collector's son uh, Aleph Bet and a basic prayer, and then the, the tax collector's son comes to Shul and leads the Kaddish, okay, and gets the Kahal, the congregation, to say, Yehei, Shmei, Rabbah, Mevarach, Lelam, meaning, 
the 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 tax collector's son leads the prayer that gets the congregation to praise God's name. Okay, then Rabbi Akiva goes home and he has another dream and he sees the man in the dream again and the man says, "Thank you, you have released me from my torments, released me from purgatory." That's the midrash. So the halachic sources say, and by the way, some of them say, and once a week in Mariv of Motzei Shabbos, we allow an orphan. That probably means a child, because normally it would be an adult who would lead services. So it probably means an orphan who was a minor, right? Normally we wouldn't let a minor lead services. But once a week, heading into Saturday night, we allow an orphan who is a minor to lead the Kaddish, to win merit for the soul of their dead, usually probably father. Okay? Why? Because of the story of Rabbi Akiva. And then they tell you the whole Midrash. So pause just to tell you about medieval ideas about purgatory. So medieval Ashkenazi beliefs were that, and this is based on some Talmudic ideas, but in the Middle Ages they believed this very strongly, that after you died, you weren't judged right away by God. You went to purgatory for a year, limbo, some in-between place where something happened to you for you to be purged, right? That's the origin of the word purgatory, right? Um, of the sins you did in your lifetime. And after that, then you went to either Gan Eden, paradise, or if you were really a bad person, you went to hell. Okay? So everyone went to purgatory, or most ordinary people who had some sins went to purgatory, at the end of which you went to Gan Eden or you went to hell. Gehino. Um, and there are other stories about souls wandering the earth in what we would call limbo. It's not... In, Usually in the American movie version, you know, it's like, I'm stuck in limbo forever unless you do something. So you were never stuck in the Jewish idea, middle age, you weren't stuck in limbo forever. You were in purgatory for 12 months. By the way, that's why you say Kaddish for a parent for how long? 11 months. Less 11 months. Okay. So Sadiqim, righteous people, go to Gan Eden, they go to paradise right away. Wicked people go to hell right away. Ordinary people, meaning the the vast majority of people, the rest of us, 99.5% of people, um, go to purgatory for a year where we work off our sins, okay? Somehow or other. The Rabbi Akiva story is one version of that. Um, if you're saying Kaddish for a parent for 12 months, what you're saying is, my parent was not a tzaddik. It's considered disrespectful. Okay? And that is why you say Kaddish for a parent only for 12 months minus a month to show that you don't think that your parent needs you to win merit for them. Because if they needed you to win merit for them by getting the congregation to say, Amen Yeheshmei Rabbah, to praise God's name, that would mean you're saying, my parent is an ordinary person and not a tzaddik. And that is considered disrespectful. And so Kaddish was shortened 
for mourners for parents from 12 months to 11 months. Everyone follow that? Okay. So the origin story of Kaddish halakhically and the Rabbi Akiva uh, Midrash is that people who die are in some in-between state. And when you're dead and in that in-between state, you can't do mitzvot anymore because you're dead. Okay. But your loved ones could accrue. It's like a S and H saving stamps in ancient times, right? If you're old enough to know what I'm talking about, your loved ones could accrue mitzvah points on your, for, on your behalf by doing mitzvahs. Okay. A particular mitzvah was given to an orphan. Originally, it was probably a minor boy. Okay. To say Kaddish once a week on Motzei Shabbos, Mariv and Motzei Shabbos, to win mitzvah points, um, for their dead parent. Anyone know why it would have been on Motzei Shabbat? This has to do with another medieval belief about souls. Because their torment generally stops on Shabbat. There are medieval beliefs that the souls are tormented or they do whatever they have to do, but they get a day off Shabbos every week. But then once Shabbat Havdalah, Shabbat is over, they have to go back to their labors in purgatory. All right. This has ideas to do with the river Sambation, all kinds of medieval, um, mythical beliefs, right? So the souls of the dead are going, just as we're, we living people, we're going back to our labors heading into the week. The souls of the dead are heading back into their labors going into the week. And so that's the moment, ah, the soul of my dead parent is going back into his torment. Let's, that's, we give the orphan the opportunity to say Kaddish. Okay. So we're not going to talk, as I said, until next week about what mourners Kaddish might mean to mourners today. Because I'm guessing it might not mean that, what I just narrated to you. That might not be the meaning you are thinking of when you are saying Mourner's Kaddish, that I'm trying to win merit for the soul of my dear departed who is currently in purgatory working off their sins in life. I'm guessing most of us aren't thinking that during Kaddish. That is not our kavanah. But historically, that's the origin of Mourner's Kaddish. Originally, it was once a week, Saturday night, Mariv, give a mourner child an opportunity to recite one of the Kaddishes. That is how it started. And then it kind of migrated into every service during the week. Okay? And it migrated to in the in the beginning of the service and at the end of the service. And if you're a traditional, right, and you you say Kaddish after Aleinu, and because that's the end of one section, then Shir Shalyom is another section. So they say Kaddish after Shir Shalyom. So the mourners were given a number of Kaddishes to say. But the origin story is the one that I just told you. And you could find that, you know, you could have found that in Wikipedia. You know, if you looked up Mourner's Kaddish, it would have told you the origin story. But Leon Wieseltier has like a 500 played, 500 plus page book about tracking down all the various versions of that halacha and those midrashim. So I'm going to pause. Again, we're not going to talk about contemporary meaning to you because we can't talk about that until we talk about the meaning of the Kaddish, which is what we're going to talk about 
next in a moment. But first, I want to pause and say, are there any questions about that? If your question is, Jews in the Middle Ages really believe that? The answer is yes. Okay. Jews in the Middle Ages had all kinds of what we would call, what many of us modern people would refer to as superstitions. They had all sorts of beliefs in demons and angels and heaven and hell and purgatory. And yes, that's what they believed. Okay. And there certainly are still some people who believe those things also, right? But those were like the widely held beliefs in the Middle Ages. Michael Van Allen. Yes, um, I had heard that that the period of saying Kaddish is 11 months less one day. Is there a tradition of that? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. I don't remember. Sounds right, but I don't remember. Yeah. Alan. Yeah. Is there any sense of the uh, migration and the timing of how long it took for the Kaddish Atom to spread and become more popular beyond the 12th century? Does it what caused it? What caused the migration? Anything along those lines you could share? There's a hypothesis. Okay. The hypothesis is um, the trauma of the Crusades. So the Crusades were traumatic for the communities of Ashkenaz. It was the biggest trauma in almost a thousand years since the Bar Kokhba rebellion, right? You know, we always talk about Jews. They were always persecuted. Da, 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 da. Okay. But in the Crusades, Jews of the Rhineland were massacred, right? They, uh, we, we know the stories. They sometimes took their own lives, the lives of their communities, their family members, right? Rather than, rather than be killed by enemies or be forced to convert. It was a great trauma. And there arises a variety of commemoration customs about death in Ashkenaz in the century or so after the Crusades. So the one which is most familiar to us is Yisker. So Yisker, you know, four times a year, Yisker, right? Yisker did not exist before the Crusades as a minhag. And Sephardim, who did not live through the Crusades, don't have Yisker. Did you know that? Sephardim don't do Yisker. They do an Azkara, like a commemoration of the dead, on on the Shiva and on the 30th day and every yard site, but they don't have this service called Yisker that they do four times a year on Yom Kippur and the three pilgrimage festivals. That's only an Ashkenazi custom, and it did not exist before the Crusades, right? So the, some scholars have a hypothesis, this is not provable, that the Crusades was t- so traumatic in terms of widespread death that communities experienced abnormal death, meaning not the usual death. The usual death is like, oh, people die from pneumonia at any age. Babies die in infancy. Mothers die in childbirth, right? All these things that they considered to be usual visitations of the angel of death. Okay, that's normal life. But the Crusades was a very abnormal and traumatizing experience. We know that it was traumatizing because of you know, it left PU team or liturgical poetry in its wake and, and written chronicles about how traumatic it was, the slaughter. Okay. Slaughter of entire communities. Um, and there seems to be an increase. So Yisker, maybe the importance of Yartzeit and maybe the spread of Mourner's Kaddish seem to come 
after the Crusades, meaning there's some enhanced sense of, uh, I don't want to say sense of, I don't want to say need for it because I don't know what that means, but there seems to be an increase in, let us call it, death-related liturgy. I don't mean stuff in funerals when I say that it's death-related. I mean commemorations of death liturgy, okay, in the wake of the Crusades in Ashkenaz. So at the moment, I can't tell you more than that. If you said to me, if you asked me like, okay, so when is the first medieval Sidur, you know, that has all the mourners' cottages that we have, that I'm not entirely sure of. I can attempt to find an answer to that. And of course, although Sephardim do not have um, Yisker, Sephardim and Adot HaMizrach, they do, of course, have mourners' Kaddish. By the way, there are different customs of mourners' Kaddish. In German schools, does anyone know how it's done? They do it differently than we do. In German schools, I know, I know this because once I was saying Kaddish for my father's all, and I was in Tel Aviv, and I went to shul in the morning, and it happened to be a Yekish shul, and they yelled at me when I said mourner's Kaddish. But in, in German schools, the German minhag is one person says Kaddish. They don't say it like a fish market, all the mourners together at a different pace. Because, you know, Germans are decorous and they don't consider that to be decorous. And they hold to the sort of to the original minhag. We allow the mourner to say a Kaddish to win merit for the soul of their loved one. Okay, so someone started to say mourner's Kaddish and I joined in and they shushed me and I could not figure out why they were shushing me. And afterwards, someone explained and they said, you be quiet. We'll give you one. Right? Like we'll get, oh, oh, you have your site? Okay. We'll give you a cottage, but shut up. This one isn't your cottage. That was basically what they were telling. Someone explained it to me afterwards and I, I was confused and embarrassed and I, I really did not understand what was going on. But that is the German Minhag in true German Yekisha Schuls. Only one cottage says at a time you come in, you tell the Gabai, uh, you know, I need to say cottage today. I mean, obviously if you're a regular and you're in your year of mourning, they know, but if you're not a regular, or even if you're a regular and you have a yard site, they might not know. You would tell them, I need to say cottage today. And they would say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'm going to assign it to you. Okay. And Larry has put in the link about how long to say cottage, a halachic piece. Thank you very much, Larry. Okay. So, um, so somewhere after the year 1200 ish is when all the mourners cottages spread, meaning the idea that there are several cottages that a mourner says. Not all of them, right? Although potentially, if I was in some German shul and there were a bunch of mourners, they might give me Kaddish Shalem to say or something like that, right? If they, bunch of mourners and everyone needs to get their own individual Kaddish, okay? That's the history of how there got to be, how the Kaddishes, which as we said, if we're talking about 12th century, the Kaddishes, which has existed for already for five or six or 700 years as punctuation in the service, having nothing to do with death or mourners whatsoever, okay? How one of them got to be given to a mourner to say, not because, again, we'll, t- we'll talk about the meaning to mourners maybe next week, right? But I want to be clear. Originally, not because the meaning of it had anything to do with mourners or death, okay? Um, but rather because 
when you get people to praise God's name, you are doing, you are performing a mitzvah. And we give the mourner a mitzvah to do so that an extra mitzvah point can accrue to that loved one in purgatory to help release them quicker from their torments of purgatory, right? We're giving the mourner a mitzvah to do. That's the original idea of why a mourner says Kaddish. We have lots of Kaddishes in the service, a whole bunch of punctuation points after different, right, sections. And we're going to give the mourner one of them to do. Originally, only on Saturday night, okay? Because that's when the souls in purgatory, which had rest from carrying their bundle of wood one day out of seven, they get Shabbos also, okay? Um, right, the Jewish idea, the gift of the Sabbath to the world, everyone gets a day off, your servants get a day off, your slaves, your animals, right? And even the souls of the dead in purgatory get the day off also. But then Saturday night, they're going to have to go back to their labors. And so we want to win an extra mitzvah point for them. I'm the, I'm the atom. I'm the mourner. I want to win an extra mitzvah point for my loved one. So I get a cottage to say, even if I am a minor, that's the thing that was probably the, the hop, the, the earliest change. Whew. Okay. Mm-hmm. What do you think about purgatory? Any opinions? All right, Leon, you, you don't have to answer that question. You can talk about it. Yeah, unmute, but Leon, you have to unmute. Unmute. We cannot hear you. Uh, yes. I, I'm wondering how the the custom got into the non-Ashkenazi world. You know, that's, it seems that's always a question. Because, there. Oh, by the way, there are customs that go one way or the other. You know, there are customs that do migrate. Uh, cause the Ashkenazi world and the Sephardi world did abut against each other, right? At various points in time. Um, I don't know the answer. I do know that, uh, th- this might not be the answer, but in general, a great nexus or crossing of Ashkenazi and Sephardi was in Tzfat in the 1500s, the Ari and those people, cause the Ari was a shul hopper, right? <laughs> and he went to Ashkenazi shuls and Sephardi shuls and the Ari created his own Nusach, right? Which was a blend of Ashkenazi and Sephardi. So in some Sidurim, it'll say, this is the minhag of Svaradim and Hasidim. Because since Hasidim were the heirs of the mysticism of the Ari, Rabbi Isaac Luria, okay? This is how some Sephardi customs migrated into Hasidism, which is Ashkenazi, right? Meaning Hasidim are like, you know, they were people from Poland and Russia and Ukraine and places like that originally. Okay. So that's how some Sephardi customs migrated into Ashkenazi. How they went the other way, I am not sure. And I'm, I'm, I'm certain that there are scholars who have tracked that down. You know, you'd have to look at all kinds of, uh, you know, medieval manuscripts and see when did it start migrating into Sephardi Sidurim. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. You know, some some one of us could surely, you know, do some Wikipedia or the, the Hebrew speakers could look at the Hebrew Wikipedia and I'm sure it has that story. When when does it first appear in Sephardic Sidurim? I do not know the answer. Right? But generally the first attestation is 
you know, Rabbi Isaac of Vienna in the 12th century. He's Vienna, okay, which is the German lands. It's clear that originally the practice to give a Kaddish to a mourner on Saturday night because of the story of Rabbi Akiva comes out of, when I say Ashkenazi sources, I don't mean Eastern European, I mean German, right? Because this is 12th century. There weren't really very many Jew, you know, the rise of Jewish life in, in, in sort of e- true Eastern Europe, Ukraine, Poland, Russia, right? That's like a couple of hundred years after that. Okay. So when we say Ashkenaz in the 11th or 12th century, you really mean Germany. There's no center of Jewish learning or great population in Eastern Europe. As the Jews get kicked out of Western Europe, gradually one country or over another, the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth is happy to invite them into um, Polish lands starting in the, I know they it grew tremendously in the 1400s and 1500s, probably starting a little earlier than that. Okay. But Ashkenazi Jewry in the near 1200 means Germanic lands. Okay. Um, okay. I think we're out of time, folks. Sorry about that. So next week we will look carefully at the meaning of the Kaddish. And I will put my uh, outline of all that historic stuff we did yesterday and some of the stuff we mentioned today. Um, Bert will put it with the um, podcast. So if you want to look for that later on today or, or wait till tomorrow, it should be there. All right, everyone. So I promise we will get to that. We're going to look at the meaning of the Kaddish and then we're going to bring it back to mourners and say, given that the Kaddish isn't originally written for mourners, is there any way in which it can be meaningful for mourners today? Uh, now I can add to my that challenge. Can it be meaningful for mourners today, even if you do not share the our medieval ancestors' belief in how purgatory works? Okay, so I'll leave you with that question mark today. Everyone, stay healthy. Be Torah. God willing, we'll meet again next week. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.